You are listening to Radio 2050, the intersection of Chicano art, with your host, me, Aztec Parrot. Today, we reach back into our archives and present an encore presentation of Radio 2050 with Ray Balboron, the legendary San Francisco youth advocate specialist. He speaks about his personal history since the late 60s, doing film work, his efforts building youth empowerment, and his work to bring accountability to San Francisco's Juvenile Incarceration Facility Youth Guidance Center, or YGC. Enjoy. You are in tune to another installment of Radio 2050, and I'm honored to have this guest in the studio with us today. If you've been involved and know anything about what's been going on in the Mission District, political, community-based issues for youth and for families over the last 30 years, then you have definitely know about the history of our guest today, a Mission District advocate for social change, Ray Balveron. I want to welcome you to Radio 2050. Thank you also. Thank you very much for having me here. This is going to be a special dinner honoring the life of Ray Balveron, our community's living legacy at Presida Valley Community Center, which is located at 534 Presida Avenue in San Francisco. This is going to be a dinner honoring the life of Ray Balboron. In fact, we're going to introduce who Ray Balboron is. If you don't know, he's a very amazing man. He's been doing a lot of amazing stuff over 30-odd years. So we're going to touch just briefly on some of them, but we're going to talk <laughs> about some of the stuff that his heart really does pump for, and that's a lot of stuff for social justice for young people, for families, for the poor, and equality, I guess, in general. Some of our listeners who may not be familiar with you, when you talk about Mission District Advocate for Social Change, what does that mean to you in your life? Well, in my life, it, it has to do with some individuals and people in the community, like Ray Rivera, Jim Queen, Esperanza Cheveria, and many more people who dedicate their lives over, over the past 30 years to make a change. Mm-hmm. A lot of them came from San Francisco State there were several state students that was fighting to change several state. They were involved in the strike. To me, it's like a family. To me, it means like a family, a community, people that wanted to change this racist system that had us in prison and, and had us going to war and living in ghettos. To me, it was like a conscious raising thing. I listened. I saw. I learned a lot. I learned what it meant to make change and then the sacrifices you have to go through to make these changes for our young people and for the community. We, at that time and now, we were building new communities, mm-hmm. but not communities based on violence or based on exploitation, but based on education and based on culture and language. You know, I learned a lot about my own language during those days. Mm-hmm. So social change means a personal change in my life and a lot of people in the community. I've known you for about 10 years or so, but one of the things is I was actually reintroduced to you again through some amazing historical footage that you had put together back in, I guess, 70, 71, 72, as part of the Mission Media Arts program. You could talk to us a little bit about what that footage is, because there's some real interesting footage in there, and what you're trying to do with it today. Mission Media Arts came out of the Real Alternatives program, one of the people working in rap uh, helped start Mission Media Arts, and that was Ray Rivera. Mm-hmm. And we went to the concept that the media belongs 
They always belongs to the people. Mm-hmm. And we used to see this KQD truck roll by the community, and it says community television, and said, that's oh. for us. So we got involved and gone down to KQED, talking to the liberals down there, and forcing them to open up the station to Mission District young people to have training and program time. And from that, we made videos and films. Actually, a couple of our films went national, went to PBS. Wow. The film that, that I gave you, Back on the Streets Again, it's a film that I produced and wrote. What we were saying at that time, there were two things going on in our lives, the war and the war back home. We were fighting two wars, the mm-hmm. war in Vietnam and the war back home for social justice and for mm-hmm. social change. And so we, we made this film as crazy as possible. And we had veterans in war uniforms, and we had weapons. We had M-16s. We had all kind of weapons. And we shot this in Half Moon Bay. Wow. Yeah, because it looked like Vietnam. And we brought a 24 Mission Street bus out there to pick up the veterans, <laughs> to take them back to the mission, to proceed the <laughs> center, to fight the war in the community. So what we're trying to do with this film and other films and other videos that were produced in the 70s and the 60s, we're trying to archive them to put them in San Francisco State yeah, to show what people were doing in those days and the type of media and the messages that they were producing. So I think yeah. it's important to have a history of people's struggle from the Mission District. Yeah, the thing that I really found interesting about it was that a lot of the issues that were being discussed back then at that time are still very pertinent and relevant today. They sure are, and uh, if you look on the way over here, you know, to Berkeley, and I see this every day, but again, we're sensitive to it today, is that so much of the homeless people yeah. in, in downtown San Francisco, when I was growing up, there was no homeless. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no homeless, you know, down in San Francisco like we see now. What it reminds me, talking about the film, when I went in 1966 to third world countries like Hong Kong and Philippines, there were homeless people. There were a lot of drugs in the street. There were a lot of young people being wow. prostituted. There was a lot of violence. And then I come, and if you look at San Francisco today, I, I can say, hey, the United States and San Francisco is like a third world country now. Wow. There's a lot of prostitution, people homeless, a lot of violence, and a lot of heavy-handed police oppression. Mm-hmm. That's just like a third world country that I visit when I was a young man back during the Vietnam War. So you got to look at it. What's going on here? What happened? Why is this like this now? The so-called richest nations in the country. It's not real, you know. Back in the early 80s, you made a conscious decision to join RAP. RAP picked you up as an employee, which you started doing uh, advocacy for youth at YGC. Yes. What, What do you think kind of drew you to working for youth? Before I started to work for RAP, I was working at Proceda Center with a group of young people from the projects and Proceda Park, and we developed a training program using half-inch video equipment, and we developed a partnership with Channel 25, Julio Ramirez, who was the director of public access at the time, mm-hmm. Community Mental Health, which we got the video equipment from, and Mission Neighborhood Centers at Proceda Center to start training people, and the mayor's office to give us money to train these young people. And from there, we went to City Hall, and we developed the first gavel-to-gavel coverage of the Board of Supervisors meeting. Wow. And we put that on the air at 25. So young people had so much energy. and They loved hands-on equipment, <coughs> hands-on technology. So 
when I went to rap and met uh, Elisa Miranda, I was ready to work more with young people and be more an advocate for them. What did you find out at YGC at that time in the 80s? What I found out that the young people were suffering. And I started to identify with this pain and the suffering they were going through. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, many of the young ladies had lice in their hair. They didn't have access to restrooms to relieve themselves when they had to. They had to relieve themselves inside their room in the floor or on a towel. The girls' showers at times were supervised by adult males. Jeez. Yeah. There was a teacher there who had electric shock device who used to shock students in front of the class. This went on for years. There were fights were arranged by counselors to solve something. I don't know what. It was very racist. People, you know, would degrade your race, degrade your mother. They would strip you. You would be naked inside cells. The structure of one of the rooms, they call it room number nine, where actually the walls was like sweating water coming down them. It was a real cold room. It was like a dungeon, wow. you know, and young people were subject to that. There was no rehabilitation. There was no real care. So I went there and interviewed these people and start developing services for them. Go to court and say, we have a program for them. Mm-hmm. No, we have a treatment program for them. We have schools. We have care for them. We have drug treatment programs for them. We have counselors for them. We have recreation for them. We have employment for them, you know, as an alternative to detention. From there, we exposed it. Mm-hmm. Myself and Alfredo Bajarcas, we went to the press, and we had a list of all abuses, and we filed them with the Child Protective Services because that's what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. We were trained to report child abuse within 72 hours. And so we had this system that had professionals, lawyers, doctors, probation officers, counselors, and they had this abuse going on night and day, and they never reported it. Uh-huh. It became a conspiracy of silence. And that's why we reported it. And not much was done at first. Not much was done. The city didn't want to deal with it. No one wanted to deal with it. They was in a denial. There was a conspiracy of silence. And children were continually telling us mm-hmm. that we're in detention saying we're going to kill each other. They were isolated from their families. Wow. And they were being abused and tortured, you know, with electric shock torture. So uh, it got to the point where it was imminent a child was going to die there. They were going to commit suicide. Someone was. And so I called the White House. Called the White House. At that time was President Reagan. And our <laughs> President Reagan, of all people, well, you know, I called him up. And the woman answered the phone, I swear to God. And I said, look, uh, I'd like to talk to the president. And she says, well, he's kind of busy right now, you know. Uh-huh. I think he was on dope, right? So she says, he's busy. Could I help you? And I says, look, I'm a Vietnam veteran. He's the commander-in-chief. Mm-hmm. Some children are being tortured in this city detention center, and some children are going to take their lives. And he has to do something about it. Uh-huh. And she said, what? And I, I read her the list of all the people's names and where they were at and the type of abuse they were receiving. I had the list, and I just read it to her. She stood on the line for a long time and listened to this list. Jose so-and-so, 14 years old, B3, no clothes, no food, being spit on, called the wetback. 
That's abuse. So we just had this list that went on and on. Electric shock, torture, locked in their rooms for days and days and days and all of that. And then she said, let me put you on hold. And she kept me on hold for a long time. I wish I could find this woman, to tell you the truth. I wish I could find her and thank her. And then she said, Mr. Balbaran, the White House has referred this matter to the proper department. Someone will be in touch with you. Mm-hmm. And I just took that and I said, thank you. And then two weeks later, the Department of Civil Rights called wrap up. It was a civil rights violation, what was going on in there. Now, you know? through all of that action that had been taken and the stuff that had been documented, something did come from that. Well, what, what came out of that was people have to change. The institution had to change and the community had to change also in how they deliver services to young people. Mm-hmm. And then came the whole concept, which was earmarked wraparound services, where the youth and the family would be looked at and how we could give them services for all these issues that they had and have those services accountable to a case manager. Not just, oh, we'll send you to a doctor. That that doctor is now part of your care team. Mm -hmm. Or we'll send you to a therapy. That therapist becomes part of a care team, and we start meeting regularly with them of how to handle these young persons and give them the services they need. And also, the wraparound services program is one part of that. The other part of it is youth empowerment. Mm -hmm. The young person in our program, we work with his strengths because his weaknesses or his uh, at-risk behavior is a jacket. You have this behavior on you, and you always will have this behavior on you. If you go to any of these things, you can see the jacket. He's bad, he's bad, he's bad. We look for the strengths in this young man. It may be soccer. It may be poetry. It may be he likes going to a certain class with a certain teacher. So we build on that because we have the record. The POs, they all got the record of all this bad behavior. So we work on his strengths, and we work on empowering him. He knows the system we're using. He knows the wraparound services. He's part of it. He has to sign off on a treatment plan. We don't force it down his throat. If you don't do this treatment plan, we're going to lock you up. He's part of the treatment plan. He says, no, that's too much. I want it less. So, okay, that's too much right now. What's your priority? Well, I just want to do these two things. Well, Well, let's do these two things. Maybe I just want to go to school. Maybe I just want to practice soccer. All these other things I need, but I'm not ready to do them. He makes that decision. So, so that's the whole concept of the model we have is youth empowerment with the rest of the departments being responsible to the family. We make the departments responsible to them mm-hmm. by having the wraparound services, and we check on those services and see how they're doing. So that's the model we use. I remember once being a, a teacher at Rap High School, those wraparound services were actually all located within one roof, which helps out a lot. That was amazing. We had the school. We had the health center. We had all the advocates there. We had Step to College all sitting in there. We had an employment system set up in there. Yeah. We had a culture. Ruban brought in dance and culture and spiritual meaning to people's lives. And if it wasn't there, we were going to find it. We look at the community as a university, one large campus, all connected together. That's why how I look at it, you know. Your role now has changed a little bit. You know, it has I, changed, uh, actually changed a lot. Yeah, so <laughs> that's just, now you're actually doing training, is that correct? I'm doing training and I'm doing consulting work for uh, the community. Um, I'm training new case managers and developing outreach plans to serve gang members in the Mission District. What about the condition of YGC today? 
right now the condition of YGC, I, I think it's sort of like a little out of control because there's no chief probation officer that's relating to the community. So when there's no head, like the head of the department, the department goes back to its old ways. Mm-hmm. See, if we leave the department, you've gotten sent along, it would go back to the days of the 80s of abusing children. It's the nature of it. Now, I have never met any judge or lawyer or PO that I didn't like and didn't respect. But when they put that suit on and get in the institution, they become a different person. That's why we need to change the institution. The people are all good. But once they get in institution mode, for some reason, they become a Dr. Jekyll. The institution gives them something that brings out something that's not caring and loving as they really are. You know, so I feel one of the things that's needed right now is a PO that respects the community and can work with the community. That's really needed. And also, uh, we need actually more people working in the new guidance center that's more closely related to the community. So those two things are very important to us to have going on. Plus Log Cabin Ranch, maybe we need to close Log Cabin Ranch and have it taken over by community people instead of just leaving it like it is. It's a very costly program. Okay. Is there anything that you wanted to say or you wanted to mention or talk about these last minutes? And one other thing I want to say, we need to fight, you know, continue to fight the power and make changes for our people. Right now, the war, it gets me, they got money for the war, but we still have homeless people. Yeah. And uh, it just blows my mind. What a contradiction. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you, Brother Ray Balboron, for sharing your voice, spirit, and history with our listeners and for your advocacy work for San Francisco youth. This interview was conducted on January 15, 2005, in Berkeley, California. This episode was produced and edited by Darren J. DeLeon. Radio 2050 is part of the Five Sisters Audio Garden Network. You can listen to Radio 2050 every Friday night between 8 and 10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on KUCR 88.3 FM or online at KUCR.org. Listen to past episodes of Radio 2050 wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening.